Let's pray as we begin our time this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you on this day recognizing the gift it is to to be your children. And so I pray that over the next few moments as we gather around your word, we would gather as hungry and eager children that are longing to hear from their Heavenly Father. And I'm reminded this morning that the words of James are jolting words. They are convicting, especially for us who live in a prosperous land, who live in a prosperous culture. And so I pray that we would think Christianly about the topic at hand. And so would you give us a mind to hear your word? Would you search us out to see if there are any unclean things within? Challenge us, we pray, by your word. Help us not to listen and then want to apply this to someone else. At the same time, O Lord, I pray that the sinful behavior that James 5 points out to us, I pray that you would use it to make us more like Jesus. For those of us who are wearied from the pursuit of money, I pray that you would free us because of Jesus. And so be gracious, we pray. May the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. We pray this because you're worthy. We pray this for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the vision was clear. Large green spaces, magnificent homes, and a master-planned community alongside the San Jacinto River. This place was Highlands, Texas, a suburb a suburb outside of Houston. And while that was the vision, the reality was quite different. A paper mill company in a nearby town had contracted with another company that would dispose of their toxic waste. And so this company built unlined pits along the San Jacinto River. And for two years, they dumped toxic waste into the pits until the pits gradually eroded And large sections of these toxic pits lie beneath the San Jacinto River. From 1967 until 2005, the site was generally unknown. People were unaware of the toxicity that was seeping into the river. And in 2008, a hurricane struck the area and the San Jacinto River flooded And the amount of sickness and the amount of cancer and the amount of digestive disorders post-2008 was staggering. And therein lies the picture. This juxtaposition, this picture of irony, of a picturesque, desirous community that was laced with unseen toxicity. And that toxicity proved to be deadly. All the while, the citizens... We're largely unaware of it. And so whether we're talking about an actual or a figurative scenario, any reality with hidden toxicity is terrifying. It's sobering. And James takes pen to paper and writes James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, in order to warn his original audience and in order to warn us today about a specific toxicity. And he's speaking figuratively here, of the world in which we live. It's a deadly, silent, soul-shriveling, life-taking, vitality-stealing environment that is well below what God would have for us. And this toxicity puts us in this place of just being bored with God. Because we get bored with God, we then turn to the things of this world to satisfy. 
And so I just want to be clear this morning, there is a reason for each and every one of us in this room. There's a reason for each and every one of you watching online to give particular effort to hearing the Word of God this morning. We're on the home stretch through our series, our sermon series through the letter of James. And in some ways, I was thinking about this this week, James has been like a really healthy meal. If you eat really healthy foods, sometimes that food is kind of hard to swallow. Maybe it doesn't taste so good. But in the end, it is rich and it is good for us. And James isn't writing to let people know how they can be made right with God. No, he's writing to a people who largely have been made right with God, or so they think. And James is writing not to, to, to make clear how to be made right, right with God, but to teach the listener how to live out a right relationship with God in and through faith in Jesus Christ. We've said this over and over. James is wanting to close the gap between what we know and how we live. James is contending with every word in this letter that your faith matters, that your faith is to make a discernible difference in how you live. And early in the letter, in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he gives us this roadmap for what the rest of the letter is going to look like. It included professing uh, a real, genuine Christians give attention to their speech, they care for the oppressed, and they avoid worldliness at all costs. And James has just hit those three topics week in and week out. In the last two weeks, when we talked about slander of another, and we talked about last week, John led us in considering presumption. We've seen the intersection of how speech that gets marred with worldliness begins to slander other people. And then this idea of worldliness that really doesn't think much about who God is and how much control he has begins to, to make presumptuous claims as though God doesn't exist. And so this morning, James is going to take the spotlight. He's going to focus on a massive gap that many Christians have in how they live. And that gap concerns the use of wealth. The use of wealth. And there is a propensity within each of us, because there's always someone who has more money than us, to think, ah, I'm off the hook. I show you my bank account. I'm not wealthy. And James would just say, not so fast. Not so fast. And so we would serve our souls today by not thinking about other people whom this text applies to and find ourselves embedded in this passage to see how the Spirit might want to reveal and to correct our attitudes regarding wealth. And it's interesting, James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 are easily uh, the, the harshest words that James is going to, to speak and to write in this letter. Uh, one commentator says, it's as though James has fire in his eyes in this section. And I think when we read uh, our passage, it's easy for us to just sort of to kind of have a veneer where there's a respectability to even what James is saying. I'm just, I was helped this week as I opened up Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage. And this is what Eugene Peterson says. He sort of puts the inspired text into his own words, and this is what he gets. A final word to you arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. You will need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you, your money is corrupt, your fine clothes stink, your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your stomach that's destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. In fact, what you were piling up was judgment. All the workers that you have exploited and cheated, they cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers that you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up. But all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn 
and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. And so it's with fire in his eyes that James wants to grab our attention this morning, just like he desired to grab the attention of the original audience. And there's a little bit of a debate in this section because the tone is so harsh. Commentators and scholars go back and forth. Is this written to Christians? Is this written to wealthy non-Christians and the Christians were being oppressed underneath them? And while I believe there are good points on both sides, I'm convinced that he's speaking to people in the church. So this is a sharp call. This is a sharp call for people who profess to follow Christ, who by the manner in which they handle wealth, doubt is being cast upon the genuineness of that profession. And so I just want you to to know as we read this and you begin to see yourself in this text, maybe there ought to be reason for you to consider yet again the profession that you make and the life that you lead. And I want to be clear, James isn't condemning the rich for being rich. All throughout the Bible, we see wealthy people who've been used by God. Wealth is not the issue. And James is not condemning those that are wealthy for the sake of being wealthy. He's condemning the sinful acquiring of wealth and the sinful use of it. And so the driving issue that James takes, sort of takes uh, account of is how did we get the wealth that we have? What do we do with it? And what is it doing to our hearts? And James uses Old Testament prophetic language to warn of the impending judgment that comes if things do not change. We've said this over and over. Anytime you read the Bible and there is a warning in the scriptures, that warning is not given because God is a mean God. That warning is an invitation of gracious mercy for you to see where the life and the lifestyle is leading and to hear the warning And by God's grace, to repent, to turn from that. And so I just want to ask this morning, how do you feel when the checks continue to come in every other week or every week or every month? How do you feel when your bank accounts have something in them? How do you feel when the retirements are invested? How do you feel when the bills are paid, when the career is locked down, when the emergency fund is there, when your financial stuff is in order? And some of you are like, man, that sounds amazing. I don't know what that feels like. I want that. And so whether you have that or whether we're pursuing that, when things are going well financially, it is, it is easy. There is a subtle yet deadly shift that takes place to where we sort of slip into this illusion of self-sufficiency and self-security apart from God. Money and possessions create this big fatty layer of indifference and apathy in our hearts. And normal words of encouragement normally don't cut through fatty layer of indifference and apathy. No, what normally helps is the skillful hand of a surgeon who takes the sharp scalpel and is able to cut through all of that indifference. And James' words here are meant to cut through that layer of indifference and apathy and lead the listener to repentance. And by God's grace, this word has been preserved. And so this morning, the invitation is for you and for me to repent, to turn where our attitudes, where our, pos- where our, our hearts lie in regards to our possessions, in re- regards to how we use what we have. We're invited to repent. It's a gracious invitation. Go the other way while there is still time. And James isn't making this up. We heard this in our our confession, our, our prayer of confession, even this morning. James isn't making this up. Matthew chapter 6. This isn't just sort of a hobby horse for James No, 
James' half-brother Jesus spoke this. If we were to lay this portion of the Sermon on the Mount over this passage, we would see where James is pulling this from. Listen yet again, James chapter, or Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wealth is meant to provide unique blessings. God gives wealth to provide for needs, to be enjoyed, to spread the gospel, to provide for other people. But the Bible is clear, page in and page out, wealth also is a snare. Much like a fire, it can keep us warm, do good, can burn the house down, do bad. Fewer things threaten to keep us from God more than our money and more than stuff. And so this morning, as we make our way through the passage, we will note one judgment and four reasons for the judgment. So one judgment and four reasons for the judgment. And the judgment is plain in verse 1. Listen again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He's speaking to the rich. And again, the temptation is going to be to check out and to think, I'm not as rich as others. I'm not as rich as I could be. I'm not as rich as I want to be to sort of justify our way out. This week, I spent way more time than I should have going on these websites where you can sort of put in how much money you make and then find out what percentage of the world you fall into. And the reason I spent so much time is because I was trying to find consensus. And so to be clear, it changed from site to site. But there seemed to be some level of agreement that if you make $25,000, you are in the top 6 to 8% of the wealthiest people in the world. And so when we think about this claim, weep now, come now, you rich, be good for us to think not just in Tampa Bay, not just in Florida, not just in the United States. It'd be good for us to think historically we're, we're, we live among one of the most prosperous times in all of history, to think globally, And so there are rich landowners, we find out in verse 4, specifically who James is talking to. And do you know what rich landowners don't do? They don't weep and they don't howl. And again, James is using Old Testament prophetic language to talk about what ought to be the response because of the judgment that is coming. And that's part of the problem, is that these wealthy landowners didn't consider anything that was coming. They were living for the here and the now. They had, they had put all of their efforts and energies into the now. They have it good for now. And James speaks a word about their future. And what's interesting is that all through this passage, James is talking about why they are going to be condemned, why miseries are going to come upon them. He's talking about a future event, but he uses past tense language. I mean, this is such a sure word. Something is going to happen, and all throughout this passage, he speaks as though it already has. These rich had concerned themselves with the future. They stored up riches. They laid up treasure. In their mind, they are thinking they have made the best investments possible. So how did it go for them? It goes really bad. It went really, really bad. And it's clear in verse 1 that these rich are condemned, that there are miseries that are going to come upon them, which is why they ought to weep and howl. You just, you, that language is captured in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 15, Hosea 7, Amos 8, all of these Old Testament prophets coming to a people who can't even see the judgment that's coming upon them. And so verse 1, 
makes clear the judgment. There is miseries that are coming upon them. But verse 1 is also an invitation to repent. And that's what it's meant to do in our hearts. James then gives four reasons why these rich stand condemned. Four reasons why the rich stand condemned. The first reason. Because hoarding wealth is worldly. Hoarding wealth is worldly. We see this in verses 2 and 3. Look at the text. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And so hoarding, amassing for yourself more and more wealth, that is a worldly way to consider what it is and to use what it is and to see what it is that God has given us. This is in opposition to the wise stewardship of wealth. And James makes clear that one of the reasons why they've sort of succumbed to this hoarding is because they've not thought about the the eternal destiny. They've not thought about the judgment that is to come. And James says that everything that you have, though you have a ton of it, everything that you have, it's all decaying. It's all rusting and eroding. And it's interesting. He uses gold and silver, metals that don't rust, to say that your possessions are rusting because in light of the eternal, the horizon of eternity, our gold and our silver, they will give way. And James is pleading for the listener. He's pleading for you and I to not be consumed. It's this vivid picture of what happens when we store up treasures on earth Those treasures will not be evidence of good stewardship. Those treasures will be used against us. They will be brought into the witness stand and they will testify that we used what God had given us wrongly. And they will consume our flesh like fire. This idea of just the imagery of the final judgment. These wealthy had worked very hard to secure the future. And instead of saving them from a future of trouble, what they've done brings them a future of trouble. Particularly in how they've acquired the wealth and how they're using the wealth. You see, to the extent that riches are loved, they will let you down. To the extent that riches are loved, they will let you down. Or better yet, to the extent that riches are loved, they will take you down. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It does say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And James is making clear that what they are investing most in on this earth will not be able to save them on the last day which would mean that is a bad investment. When what I invest in most now can't save me on the last day, that is a bad investment. And in just a few words, James James gives this vivid description over the horror of being devoured by God himself. The rich, these rich landowners will lose everything they have devoted themselves to and relied upon. Instead of generously and wisely stewarding God's gift, they selfishly hoarded their wealth. It's as if they've forgotten that that they're living in the last days. One commentator says, they lived without watching God's clock. And and I want to be clear, there's a weight that this text is meant to hit us with. But there's also ways in which we can sort of take that weight and apply it in some unhelpful ways. 
James isn't talking about having any money in any account. He's not talking about having a savings account. He's not talking about giving money to a retirement plan. Though, to be clear, we may be sinful in how we do those things. James isn't speaking of wise planning. You see, money's powerful because money gives us an illusion of security and significance that can only be found in God. Security and significance. You see, money can take care of most things, so we think if I have money, then I know I'm secure. And it offers significance because it helps other people perceive us in a certain way. Let's just be clear. Money doesn't make us happy. Having more money, money itself doesn't make us happy. We're happy because of what money makes us feel. It gives us security. It gives us significance. And that makes us happy. And there's no better way outside of Jesus for that false sense of security than with money and possessions. And I believe this is why Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You see, as we accumulate stuff, something is going on underneath the surface that ought to be an indicator that we're pursuing security. We're pursuing significance. And what's crazy is that most of us are aware, are aware of this pursuit. And once we get it, we realize that it, it's not enough. And so we have to pursue more. It never satisfies. So we do just a little bit more and we get just a little bit more and a little bit more, often never stopping to think that maybe it doesn't satisfy, not because we don't have enough, but because it was never intended to satisfy. It doesn't satisfy because it doesn't last. Last week in his sermon, John referenced Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is speaking about the one who builds bigger barns. Luke chapter 12, verse 20 makes clear bigger barns is not the answer. The answer to just tearing down everything and accumulating more and building bigger barns so we can store more, that's not the answer. And the last days that, that James mentions here, the, the last days are not just something way out there. We're living in the last days. Since Pentecost, we have entered into the last days. And the next event on the calendar of Christ is his return for the redemption of the entire created order. At any moment, that can happen. And so, friends, let's live like it's the last days. It is. God has given us resources. God has given us wealth to provide for our needs. To enjoy him through his gift. To spread the gospel and to help other people in need. And so James would say, if you have it, steward it well before the moths get to it. It may be a really good exercise for each of us to take a Sharpie this afternoon and with everything we own, just write over it, given to me by the King of glory for his glory and for the good of as many people as possible. Don't do that. But James is just driving us to this place of where is your treasure? What is your treasure? What's your deepest source of security and significance? And are we living this life as though this, the temporary, the here and the now, is all that there is? And if you're not a Christian, I just want, I want you to hear the warning this morning. If you are making the pursuit of money and possessions your highest good, just hear from James. That is a pursuit that is toxic. It's deadly. Nothing that you can get your hands on in this life can and will protect you for the next. In fact, how you laid hold of it 
and how tightly you hold to it may be evidence against you. And James is making clear only misery is to come for those who do not lay hold of Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, you should be making money, you should be saving money, you should be giving money, you should be investing money, but do not love money. Don't love it. The love of money is only for this world because that's the currency of this world. It's not the currency of the next. The next reason for their condemnation wasn't just that hoarding wealth was worldly, but number two, defrauding others is worldly. Defrauding others is worldly. You see this in verse four. This is going to talk about how you possess, how you acquired the money. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which, you, which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears. The Lord of the Sabbath. It wasn't just their hoarding. It was their business practices that were corrupt as well. They're exploiting laborers in the field. This is pre-John Deere. This would have been exhausting, extremely difficult work. And there are people that are working for wages so that they can survive. And these wealthy landowners had the audacity to just not give what was rightly due the workers and the laborers. It's fraud. It's injustice. It's evil. And we could just go through. They didn't listen to Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you in the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. He didn't, these wealthy landowners didn't listen to Moses. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 15. or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13 and verse 15. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. These wealthy landowners didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Proverbs 21, verse 6, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. It's a pursuit of death. These wealthy landowners didn't listen to the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13, woe to him who does not give wages that are deserved. These wealthy landowners didn't listen to the wisdom of David, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. If the previous verses weren't frightening enough, James says that the withheld wages that they have wrongly not given have turned to cries. And those cries have reached the ear of God Almighty. To reach the ear of God is a euphemism in the scriptures, which means that it has received God's attention. James takes us straight from the earthly facts to the injustice that was done to the heavenly significance. I mean, we could talk day, we could talk all day about the injustices that the families who were left unfed and uh, the, the needs that this injustice created. But he doesn't address any of that. James addresses the heavenly significance. James makes clear that the Lord is aware of what is happening. One of the sweetest gifts for those who have been defrauded is the knowledge that they are not alone. 
and the injustice that has been done against them have, it's been seen. The cries have been heard. The Lord is aware of what is happening. The fraud of these wealthy landowners hadn't escaped the attention of God. The pain of the people had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That picture, the Lord of hosts, it it would conjure up Isaiah chapter 5. And in Isaiah chapter 5, the rich were to use their, their riches and their wealth to gain every piece of available land for the good of others. But they began to attain every piece of available land for their own comfort and their own security. And there were the poor among them who were suffering loss and who were suffering income, loss of income. And the Lord comes to his vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, and he's looking for the righteous in his vineyard. And the only thing he can hear, it's a, it's a staggering picture. The Lord comes looking, and when he gets to the vineyard, he doesn't see any righteous. In fact, all he hears are the cries of the oppressed and the sufferers. And the fact that Isaiah designates and speaks of him as the Lord of hosts would have been massively encouraging to those that were being oppressed and suffering. The Lord of hosts brings comfort to people that the Lord is on the side of his suffering people. He steps in to judge the oppressor and he will do so every time. That title, the Lord of hosts, it points to this Lord who has within himself and at his sovereign command every possible resource and every possible power. There is no power, however great to the earthly eye, that's beyond the Lord of hosts' capacity. There's no need, however pressing it is, beyond any means that we have that's beyond his mean, that exceeds his capacity. You see, the powerless laborer may not have had much of a fight in him, but the good news is that his cries had made it to the Lord, and the Lord will fight for him. The Lord is with him. I don't believe James chapter 5 is a sermon about race. But James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 It touches on oppression in a variety of ways. And I read this and I can't help but think about our nation's own dark past of enslaving Africans. Even the the language of landowners has a certain ring to it. And as I'm reading about William Wilberforce and John Newton, it, it were passages like this that touched the consciences of many in previous generations that led them, that lit them afire, really, to see the abolition of slavery. It's a sweet gift when we are able to see with earthly eyes the intersection between the cries of the oppressed reaching the Lord and momentary answers justice that touches those injustices. I mean, I even think about Juneteenth this past Friday. While we have a lot further left to go, I am very grateful, just in a moment of grace, years of the oppressed crying out, all the while wondering, is is God there? Because wealthy and sinful landowners thinking mostly economics. How do I turn more of a profit? How do I ensure my life is padded? And just seeing God's grace when justice touches injustice. It makes me long for heaven. It makes me long for when we don't even know injustice. That it's only justice. You see, this passage is hard for those who've made a living because of fraud. And it's sweet for those who have been victims of fraud. Leads us to our third reason for why the wealthy stand condemned. Number three, using wealth for self-indulgence is worldly. Using wealth for self-indulgence is worldly. So hoarding wealth is worldly, defrauding others is worldly, and using wealth for self-indulgence is worldly. 
Listen to verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Luxuriously living stresses the extravagant comfort and the softness of living. Wanton pleasure is not just enjoying life, but going beyond pleasure, even to embracing vice in order to get the pleasure. It's going against all divine restraints. These two ideas of luxuriously living and wanton pleasure, it provides a picture of life without self-denial. If your wealth is leading you to a life that is very, very low on self-denial, that is worldly. That is not why you have been given that. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a man who feasted extravagantly every day, but who in the end loses eternity because his wealth wasn't meant to be spent self-indulgently on himself. Living for earthly pleasures, it's dangerous because it's living without the thought of a heaven to be gained or a hell to be avoided. Paul writes about this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I mean, the picture here in James 5 is fearfully vivid. Fatten hearts in the day of slaughter. Like so many unthinking beasts, just luxuriating in the rich pasture daily, growing fat by the hour and careless of the fact that each day that passes and each hour that passes brings them one hour and one day closer to the butcher. I mean, this is what wealth does. It leads us into this place of indifference and apathy. And next thing we know, moment by moment, fattening ourselves for slaughter judgment. When it's, when it's slaughter day, there's only one beast who's safe, and that's the thin one. The well-fed have made itself ready for the knife. The more that we surround ourselves with creature comforts, the less likely we are to cultivate the spiritual trimness of physique that's needed to keep us in the battle of holiness. And again, I just want to be clear, this idea of using wealth self-indulgently, he's not, I, it, would be, it would be really tempting just for us to, to leave and start making man-made sort of declarations. Okay, we can't get new tires on the car. Honey, no anniversary trip this year. Daughter, no birthday party for you. We're cutting it all out. I, he's not talking about enjoying anything in this world. He's speaking of a way of living that never denies yourself and always seeks to improve comfort and indulgence. Right? Randy Alcorn says, God doesn't give us more money to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. God gives us more money than we need so that we can give more generously. I just wonder if, is that, is that even remotely close to how we think of our money? And it's so hard for us to realize this because we are awash in this day in and day out. There's always someone who has more than us, so this text never applies to us. And so when was the last time you helped someone out financially? Be careful here, because if that was this past weekend, don't grow proud. But is this a common way of living for you? 
Like the hoarder whose stuff falls on them and kills them, beware of the dead end of amassing great wealth. College students, pursue your degree. Pursue your career with all of your heart. No career counselor is going to counsel you on what's best for your soul. Which is just why the local church is such a gift. The career counselor is going to tell you what you need to be successful. But you will always need and want more. And so find good people in the local church that will give you advice along the way to know how to handle success and to know how to handle money in the bank. I was just thinking this week and the question around this point of just, Christian, do you deny yourself for the good of others? What have you given up to support the work of the church, to support the spread of the gospel, to support the care of the poor? Did you hear what I didn't say? I didn't ask you, What are you giving the church? What are you giving to the spread of the gospel? What are you giving to care for the poor? I asked, what have you given up? There's a component of self-denial that ought to mark our giving. We don't just give when it's convenient and when there's a lot. Leads us to our last point. Oppressing and murdering others is worldly. Oppressing and murdering others is worldly. We see this in verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. There appears to be a progression of sorts to the seriousness of the offense from personal hoarding in verses 2 and 3 to murdering the righteous. These landowners were either directly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of those who were righteous, which then ought to give us a a very clarifying look into the type of various trials that James mentions at the beginning. Some of these Christians were being killed. And so James at the very beginning says, let endurance have its perfect result. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And the fact that these righteous who were being oppressed and murdered, the the fact that there was no resistance on their part, that can only be explained by the transforming effect of the gospel which made them righteous. I'm sure there was an impulse to retaliate. But this is exactly what living a life of accumulating more and more stuff does. Many people don't begin to say, wake up one morning and they say, man, I am wealthy. I'm ready to kill people. But there is a subtle drift that wealth and affluence and possessions sort of just leads us into. And it's not that we set out to be evil towards others and to kill others, to oppress others. But this rat race of ensuring that we always have more, it keeps us from being aware of the needs of others. I can't meet the needs of others when what consumes me most is more stuff for me. It just won't, it it won't happen. Wealth and affluence blinds us to prioritize our own comfort and we truly miss the needs of others around us. I mean, again, just think about, think about how the history of this country, the stain of slavery, landowners wanting money and comfort, they would take away the dignity, the personhood, and treat people like objects. Like how in the world does that happen? It happens because we think of self most. There are other reasons it happens. Think about reforms that are needed to our justice system. Ronnie prayed about incarcerations earlier. Think about over the last 47 years, 
Our country alone has aborted the entire population of Italy. Who would ever dream of wiping out a whole country, 62 million, the 23rd largest country on our planet? And here's the thing. Whenever we give ourselves to pursuing more wealth, and we will pursue more wealth no matter the cost, what we end up doing is being vaguely aware of injustices, oppression, wrongs that are being done, but we don't say anything. We rarely pray about it because we're too busy doing our own thing. And this is not intended to be a guilt trip. This is just an example of how living in an affluent culture can numb our our senses to staggering injustice. And when we do this with our money, James says that the love of God is a stranger to our hearts. I'm not talking about, I struggle here, I struggle with this, but I repent and, I, and then I struggle. And No, I'm talking about, I don't have any struggle with this because I'm headlong into life of self-indulgent. And so we get to the end and you think, wow, what a depressing Father's Day sermon right? Father's Day. And we talked about money. It's just terrible. All the dads leave discouraged, putting a freeze on going out to eat tonight. What better gift could dads give than begin to, to lead out in repentance? To not do away with enjoying anything God has given, but begin to lead the way in rightly stewarding what God has given. What kind of legacy do dads leave when they give themselves in the use of everything that God has given them for his glory and for the good of others? What better time to turn your life around and to begin to live for something greater than stuff and money? That God would graciously have you hear this sermon and to be reminded that there's something greater to live for than yourself, and it all flows from the Heavenly Father. You see that last sentence in James chapter 5, verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. There's no way to read that and not think of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way to read that and to not be reminded of what even Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. The only true and righteous one to ever have lived, completely innocent, walked the face of this earth, is murdered. As a part of God's eternal plan to save sinners like you and like me, he's falsely accused, he's arrested, he's sentenced to die a death on a cross, and he did not resist. He didn't even open his mouth in the face of that injustice. And oh yeah, by the way, he was the Lord of hosts. And you say, that's really easy to say if that's what he said, but then he dies. Oh no, he proved he was the Lord of hosts with all power on the third day, rising triumphantly from the the grave to make clear his identity. So why in the world who would the only one who would have every right to resist, why did he not resist? It's because of why he came. Everything about this good news that's found in Jesus flows from the generosity of our heavenly Father. Romans 1 makes it clear that every one of us preferred creation over the Creator. God, I don't want you. I just want the stuff that you give. And God's response is staggering. It's not just rightly deserved condemnation, but there's also grace. He sends 
And Jesus comes, and Jesus lives perfectly, and he dies a death on a cross. He absorbs the wrath of God towards those who would believe, and then he grants us the righteous obedience of Christ. The gospel in and of itself is the generosity of God the Father. And it flows to us. And when we receive it, it creates in us a new identity that serves as a buffer against the toxicity that our culture throws at us. And so if you're here today and you think there's no hope for all of my sin, there is hope because his grace can run to you in forgiveness anywhere that you've sinned. But there's also hope if you're tired of thinking, there's no way I can defeat this. It's not just I'm bothered by all the places I've, I've messed up, but I can't, I can't even think about a future where I wouldn't mess up. His grace empowers you. You were saved not only from his wrath, you were saved for good works. His grace empowers us. And so if you're tired of the, the guilt of not doing it right, Jesus forgives you because of his life, death, and resurrection. And if you're tired of the, the failure and the weakness and the inability to do right, Jesus empowers you through his life, death, and resurrection. And so if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you. Know the heavenly Father's love. Turn from your sin and trust in him alone. It would be the joy of any member of this church to follow up with you about what that means. And for those of us who are hoarders, his blood-bought grace is able to set you free. There's hope for you, hoarder. And for those of us who defraud others, it's possible to have a heart that treats others justly through faith in Christ. There's hope for you, defrauder. And to those of you who have been defrauded, good news. He hears your cries. There is grace to free you from the wrong that has been done against you, and he will right every wrong. To those of us who are self-indulgent, there is a grace to free us from that. To those of us who crush and oppress and murder others, Christ is a better master than the master of money. To those of us who've been oppressed and crushed, Jesus Christ defends the marginalized. He didn't resort to violence, but he acted in accord to the word of God, and he waited patiently upon the Lord to right what was wrong. Covenant Life Church, let's commit to fight together this toxic death trap called wealth. It's been given to us so that we would leverage it for the good of others and for the glory of God, and yet in our hands, it gets all kinds of messed up. We have it so that we can better participate in this great war of pushing back what is dark in the world. Watch boredom be erased from your life as you begin to live for this purpose. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling, I'm calling luxuries needs, and I'm using my money just the way unbelievers do. And I began to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people groups drop out of my mind. I start dreaming about the, I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into this secular mindset that looks first at what man can do and forgets what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. Brothers and sisters, James has served us by forcing us to remember the wartime mindset. This is what we've been called to. Oh, that we might be an open-handed, generous group of Christians inflamed with a zeal for the gospel, living fully, not self-indulgently, into this mission that we've been called into. And so let's sacrifice. Let's risk our lives. Let's see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, even through our use of what he gives us. Amen. Let's pray. God, your word has gone forth and we are in need of help to apply it and to respond rightly to it. And so in this moment of silence, would you recall to our minds places 
where we need to confess and places where we need to repent. And oh, would you be so gracious to give us the faith to confess and to repent. We, let's just declare even now, God, to you, we don't want to be a people who spend what you give on us most. There's good to be done. And so would you help us do good? Speak to us in this moment of silence, we pray.